When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Привет. Это Юлия Навальная. Сегодня, в первый раз на этом канале, я хочу обратиться к вам. На моем месте должен быть другой человек. Но этого человека убил Владимир Путин. This is Julia Navalny. I shouldn't be here talking to you. Someone else should be in my place. But three days ago, he was murdered by Vladimir Putin. Но еще Путин отнял Навального у вас. Где-то в колонии на крайнем севере. За полярным... Yesterday... Alexei Navalny's widow, Yulia, put out a video message to the world. Putin killed my children's father. Putin took away the most dear thing I have ever had. My closest and most loved man. Alexei Navalny was officially reported dead at 2.15 p.m. local time on Friday. Two minutes later, the prison service had already put out an official press release. Four minutes after that, long before there was any post-mortem, a state-controlled channel on Telegram claimed it was a blood clot that killed him. This remarkable speed and the fact that Navalny's body hasn't yet been released has led many of his supporters and his wife to a different conclusion. She believes he was poisoned with a nerve agent, Novichok. The Kremlin's denied any involvement in Navalny's death. But could this be a turning point for Russia? Я буду продолжать дело Алексея Навального. I will continue the work of Alexei Navalny, continue to fight for our country. I urge you to stand next to me. What does Navalny's death mean for Putin and for those who are fed up of his rule? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, what Navalny's death means for Russia. (laughs) 
I'm Mark Galliotti. I'm director of the consultancy MIAC Intelligence and an honorary professor at University College London. Mark, as a, a big Russia watcher, you, you, this is a world you know well. Did you know Navalny? Did you meet him? I'd been to some of his rallies and had the opportunity to hear him speak and uh, get that sense of his astonishing capacity to play to a crowd. But my wife is a Russian, well, Russian-American, and had been the political editor of the Moscow News. So she'd had the opportunity to interview him and also, again, had, had been something of a, a fixture at his many various rallies and uh, meetings through the years. What did she make of the news when it came? I feel as if I'm in mourning and I'm just a Russia watcher. I think for, for, for Russians, particularly Russians who, who care about their country, this, this comes as a tragic blow. But it's not as if people necessarily believe that he was ever, frankly, going to walk out of the Russian prison camp system now. But that still doesn't make it any the less tragic and heart-wrenching when it actually happens. We'll look in more detail at what this means for Putin and what we can tell about his state of mind in, in a moment. Before we do, though, just stepping back, you know, that sense of shock and, you know, you described it for yourself as mourning over the announcement of the death of, of Navalny. Just explain why people felt it so strongly. Just explain why he was such a popular character. Generally speaking, you know, at his high point, he had about 20% support, which considering the degree to which the state did everything it could to silence him and marginalise him is no bad thing. I think Navalny's real strength, I think it's threefold. He was a very engaging, articulate, charismatic speaker. And not just that, but he knew how to connect to a wide variety of audiences. He was precisely able to reach out beyond the usual middle-class, metropolitan, liberal constituencies in Moscow and St. Petersburg. He had begun to create a national network to try and speak to lots of different constituencies that all had their own complaints, using the issue of corruption to link them together. Navalny's big thing was exposing the corruption of Putin and his cronies, often with these very slick, really quite witty videos. And corruption is one of these issues which can unite everyone from a professor in Moscow to you know, a dock worker in Vladivostok. Because everyone knows that, frankly, the rich and the powerful are ripping the country off for their own advantage. And everyone has their own stories of dealing with corruption. So, you know, he had begun to actually build a whole coalition of the fed up. And finally, I think that Navalny was, was in some ways had become an, an avatar, an icon of that hope for the future. Russians do have, however hard it is to, to grip onto it these days, some sense that things can get better. And that's clearly something that is actually not to Putin's advantage. He wants people to feel that there is no alternative, that any change would be for the worse. And you have someone like Navalny who had a vision that Russia could be a stable, prosperous, democratic and above all law-based state. Well, so long as he represents that hope, that's what made him dangerous for Putin. For a lot of people now, that hope will be being questioned, I suppose. Just take us back, though, sort of just remind us of Navalny's background, how he came to be this figure of hope for so many people. His, his background was as a lawyer. And when there were mass protests in 2011, 2012, so-called Balotnaya protests, triggered by yet another obviously rigged 
parliamentary election and also Putin's return to the presidency. Navalny was just was just one of a whole variety of protest leaders who emerged. And from this maelstrom, Navalny emerged precisely as, you know, one one of the youngest and most charismatic. You know, he was very good at actually building structures and building organizations. And in particular, he identified this this hunger, frankly, amongst ordinary Russians, not just to hear about the corrupt misdeeds. Of, of their masters, but also actually to feel that they could do something about it. And just remind us of, you know, some of his greatest hits in that respect, because, you know, some of those videos went around the world. Two in particular are worth mentioning. One was an expose of the corruption around the prime minister and, and briefly sort of Putin's sock puppet president, Dmitry Medvedev, who in many ways was still regarded as, as one of the good guys, insofar mm. as there are good guys in Putin's circle. And his, his video really dug into the massive levels of embezzlement, which he alleged, and frankly, convincingly, um, Medvedev and his family have been involved in. And we're, and we're talking about embezzlement to the tune of nudging towards a billion pounds stolen from, wow. from the Russian people. Exactly. So, you know, we're not just talking about someone who, uh, you know, ma- managed to get a few home improvements sort of no. snuck in. <laughs> this so, isn't loose change. Absolutely. So, so, so there was that. But perhaps most dramatically of all, there was his investigation into what's called Putin's palace, built specifically for him on the, the Black Sea coast. And essentially, Navalny managed to get access to plans and so forth. So, so we, we got to see 3D renderings of, of the Aqua Disco and the Pole Dancing Club. And in the very first day, there were more than 20 million views of that video. So again, you know, not only did it puncture this myth of the, the elite around Putin being the earnest defenders of Russian national interests, because they made it clear just how much they were ripping off every single Russian, but also, frankly, managed to make them look ridiculous. And let's face it, for a kind of a a pompous and paranoid regime like this, being made to look ridiculous is actually politically dangerous. That obviously made him a real threat to the Kremlin. And this isn't, you know, we have seen them trying to kill him in the past. Just talk us through that. Yes, I mean, at first they simply tried to intimidate him, targeting him. There was a point when, for example, he was splashed with this green dye that actually left him sort of with, with, with permanent damage to one of his eyes. But particularly once he'd started to try and make his campaign nationwide, that's when the Kremlin decided something had to be done. So there was a team of officers from the Federal Security Service, the FSB, which is the sort of main internal security agency, that actually, again, it becomes almost farcical, poisoned his boxer shorts with the same Novichok nerve agent that was later used in Salisbury. It was March 2018 when deadly nerve agent was deployed on the streets of the city. The target, Sergei Skripal, he and his daughter fell ill after Novichok was smeared on his door handle. Four months later, Dawn Sturgis died after she came into contact with a discarded perfume bottle used to carry it. While Navalny was was flying back to to, to Moscow from from the Far East, he suddenly became very ill. And in this respect, there there is a a wonderful irony here, because Navalny was saved by Russians. Obviously, the, the plotters had presumed that by the time the plane landed in Moscow, Navalny would either be dead or so far gone that 
you know, his, his survival would be impossible. However, what happened was the pilots acted very promptly when they heard they had a medical emergency, diverted to an airport on the way. There, on the tarmac, the paramedics correctly identified that this seemed to be a nerve poisoning and administered atropine, which is exactly what he needed. And then the doctors at the hospital there were able to stabilise him at least. He was then able to be eventually medically evacuated to Germany for proper treatment. For Navalny, when you've been through something like that and the state has made it quite obvious that they can get very, very close to you, I mean, literally to your boxer shorts, what makes you go back to Russia? There have been other Russians who have left and continued being anti-Putin forces in exile. And frankly, they become a very different kind of phenomenon from some comfortable birth in the West, I don't know, at a think tank or something, encouraging Russians to quite possibly take their lives in their hands by going to protest. It didn't sit right with him. He wanted to show the Russian people that he was still with them. So it was an act of astonishing bravery. It was an act of astonishing patriotism. And also it was an act of astonishing bloody-mindedness because I think he was also just angry and was not willing to basically allow himself to be forced out of his own country. You mentioned he he was imprisoned. Tell us about the most recent movements. Yes, it's a it's a classic element of, of the Russian prison system that you you may well get moved from from one prison camp to the next. And there was a point where suddenly Navalny seemed to disappear from his previous one, and no one could could find out where he was. And it turned out he was on what's called etap, the often quite lengthy tr- prisoner transport between one camp and the next. And he ends up in this camp up in the high north, which goes by the sort of the, the nickname Polar Wolf. And, you know, it is in conditions where the temperature can easily drop to minus 30 or below. So these are, to put it at the very least, austere conditions at the best yeah. of times. And, Put- and Putin makes sure that Navalny does not face the best of times. He is constantly being put into exceedingly cold, solitary cells for notionally not uh, obeying every element of the prison rules or showing disrespect, and faced a series of you know, petty brutalities, you know, also sleep deprivation and the like, that in each of the individual cases might not represent too much, but you put them all together and frankly begins to come close to a regime of torture. He always seemed remarkably cheerful when he was seen in public and in court cases or in messages to to his supporters. What did you make of that? I mean, this was was part of his his persona. And okay, look, let's, let's not be naive. I'm sure there was a degree to which he knew the effect it had and cultivated it. But it still is quite extraordinary that, for example, he, when he'd been sent to this high north prison camp, he then, via his lawyers, put out a little series of tweets in which he likened himself to, to Grandfather Frost, Died Maroz, that is the sort of Russian equivalent of Father Christmas, because while he was in transfer, he'd grown a beard and now he was up near enough the North Pole. But the whole point is exactly, this is a man who suddenly finds himself in in these ghastly conditions. And instead of just simply pitying himself, he's instead making a joke of it. That probably helped ensure that the regime regarded him as dangerous. Because as Mm. I said before, humour is one thing that this regime really doesn't know how to deal with. That humour was gloriously displayed the last time the world saw Navalny. Я вам отправлю 
This is a clip of a court appearance the day before his death. Navalny is behind bars in that Arctic prison, but he's being beamed in via a video link to a Russian courtroom. He looks gaunt and his hair is closely cropped, but he's in good spirits, smiling and joking with the judge. Your Honour, he says, I'll send you my personal bank account number so that you, with your huge salary as a federal judge, can warm up my personal account, because thanks to your decisions, I'm running out of money. The judge can't help but smile. It was a regular courtroom appearance for Navalny, one of dozens he's done since his imprisonment. But within hours, he would be dead. Coming up, what do we know about what happened to Navalny? And could this be a tipping point for Russia? That's in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mark, we know that he's in this incredibly difficult prison in awful conditions, freezing temperatures. What do we know about what actually happened to him? The truth of the matter is still very little. I mean, the, essentially, he, he was seen, as you've mentioned, in a uh, video evidence to, to a, a hearing. And then the day after, it seems, or you know, what we've been told is that he was walking in the uh, camp's confines, suddenly fell ill. They called an ambulance. Attempts were made to resuscitate him, but he died. At first, we, we, we heard tales that it was a, a blood clot. Now they're just simply saying it was a sudden death syndrome. We don't even really know where the body is. It was claimed that the body had gone to the nearby town for an autopsy. When Navalny's lawyer and mother went there, the morgue said that they hadn't received it. Someone else was claiming that they'd seen the body. And it did have the kind of bruising that would be uh, appropriate for someone who, where there had been attempts to resuscitate. But, but we really don't know. And in part, this may be a, a cover-up. It may just simply be incompetence. We can never rule that out. But also it may be a kind of a last bit of spite that even his body, the, 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 the state is keeping from his, his loved ones just to play vicious little games with them. It sounds ridiculously petty, but nonetheless, we have seen a string of analogous pettiness in the past. Mark, we don't yet know exactly what happened to him or how he died. But is it still correct to say 
Putin was responsible for his death. Absolutely. Look, I, I, I am faintly suspicious that it's unlikely to be the case that Putin actually ordered him killed at that time. Not because Putin is not perfectly capable of doing so. He, he tried to have Navalny killed once already, but simply because the timing doesn't really work. At the moment in, in, you know, in Washington, they're still wrangling over a substantial aid package for Ukraine. I could see this actually pushing those Republicans who are holding out against it into feeling they can't hold it back. Mm. And also, in less than a month, there are going to be elections, presidential elections in, in Russia. And although look, we have no doubt at all, that obviously, Putin is going to romp home in the carefully stage-managed triumph. But nonetheless, it's clear that Putin's political technologists wanted this to be a, a quiet and uncontroversial election. And this carries the risk that actually people might be, be more, more likely to, to protest. So, you know, I, I suspect that it's not that actually orders were given. But the point is exactly, as, as you've kind of intimated, Putin, and it has to have been Putin who did this, decided that Navalny had to be put into these astonishingly austere conditions. So, you know, whether it's by direct action and intent or whether it's a sadistic slow motion form of murder, Putin is responsible. Is this a sign of strength for Putin in that, you know, he can quash any kind of opposition? Or is it actually a sign of weakness that he feels so threatened by figures who stand up against him? Now, look, maybe it's because it's what I want to believe. One has to recognise there's always a danger of that. But I would personally say it's a sign of weakness. Look, back in the day, the Putin system worked without actually feeling the need to kill people in the main. There, there were some individual cases, I, 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 of course. But on the whole, it was able to rely on spin, on intimidation. And also, we've got to recognise a certain degree of genuine legitimacy. There was a time when Putin was genuinely popular. Those days have long since gone. And instead, I see this as hybrid authoritarianism turning into, frankly, a sort of thuggish kleptocracy, which knows that it doesn't have the support of the, of the country. It reflects a regime that now feels it has no choice but to use violence. And violence is the last, not the first option in these circumstances. Is there any chance that this could be a tipping point, that this might rouse people to, to come out and and try and change things in Russia? Or does it just make it even harder? Does, does, has the government shown that it's, you know, it will stamp down on any kind of opposition? I think when it comes down to it, this is not something that is going to get people to actually come out necessarily on, on the, the, the streets and protest know, in large numbers, knowing full well that that will lead to a very severe backlash. In Moscow, they came to pay their respects despite warnings from officials not to participate in events related to his death. Local reports say around 100 people were arrested at gatherings across the country with supporters of Mr Navalny. What I think it contributes to is the creeping delegitimation of this regime. You know, these elections that are coming up, yes, they're, they're uh, in many ways a totally empty ritual, but nonetheless they are an attempt to basically make people think that even if they don't like Putin... Somehow out there in the, in the rest of Russia, there's a large majority who do. And I think, you know, anything at, at this point that makes people more and more suspicious means that, frankly, that probably won't have the effect. We're genuine, generally seeing the support for the regime ebb. And although I think this won't be the spark, 
I honestly think actually if there is going to be a spark, it's going to be much more practical issues. A new attempt mm. at you know, calling up more hundreds of thousands of Russians to fight in the war, maybe. But nonetheless, what it does is it creates the preconditions. Navalny's whole campaign was, after all, about mobilising this coalition of the fed up. I think that coalition of the fed up is getting stronger and stronger. And we have no idea who and when will actually be able to galvanise it. But nonetheless, I think it will be coming. And just talk us through what we know of that coalition of the fed up. You know, who are they? Are these the the mothers and widows of, of soldiers who've, who've been killed in Ukraine? Are they the younger generation? Who are the people who are, you know, the late latent opposition who might at some point stick their heads above the parapet? I think precisely its strength and its weakness is that it is actually just so diverse. It means it's harder to actually link it all together, but it's also harder for the state to isolate and pick off any element. So, yes, we, you know, we've already seen, I mean, the, the one group that really can still protest with a degree of impunity are precisely the mothers, mothers of serving soldiers in, in Ukraine. It, it, it's at the very least not good optics to unleash your riot police on a collection of grannies and mothers. But much more broadly, the majority of Russian families no longer have any savings, for example, and a growing proportion of their disposable income is having to go on food, as inflation particularly puts up the prices there. We see the so-called budgetniki, essentially kind of civil servants, you know, lower level members of the government apparatus, who again are finding themselves squeezed. They're not really able to uh, mobilise in, in, as trade unions because the trade unions are entirely state controlled. And, and they're feeling dissatisfied with their, with their place in the world. I mean, I think back to talk, talking to cops who actually, although in many ways they're expected to be the stormtroopers of the state, they were mm. very unhappy with that role. They, they joined to do a job and that they feel they're having to protect big criminals, i.e. the people at the top of the system by suppressing people who are just simply trying to bring attention to their crimes. You know, I could go, I could go on and on. All of these grievances are creating a kind of protest potential. And the nightmare for the Kremlin is precisely what happens if at some point someone, some movement or some incident manages to bring them together. That's when you suddenly have a country that is saying enough. Does that coalition of the fed up, does it need a strong character to bring them together, as we had with Navalny, but does his loss sort of make it less likely that they'll ever find a voice? Or are there other strong characters on the horizon who you think might take his place? I mean, there aren't figures on the horizon, but the point is what tends to happen is that the, the times and the movement create their person. Yeah. And I think this is one of the interesting things that actually it's another reason why the Kremlin may one day regret going after Navalny and other opposition figures, both liberals and indeed ultranationalists. Because, yes, it takes out the, sort of the, the initial array of potential threats, but it also means you lose control over who emerges. And, Mark, you mentioned there that, you know, all opposition to Putin isn't just from the Liberal Democrats. There is also the ultranationalists. Talk us through that. Yes, this is a phenomenon that really has, has emerged, particularly since the invasion, the so-called turbo-patriots. People who, quite frankly, didn't really have a problem with the invasion of Ukraine, but do have a problem with the incompetence, the corruption, the amateurishness, which has been demonstrated in the course of that war. And what they're more or less saying is, look, we are patriots, and it is patriotic 
to oppose Putin for these reasons. Now, the, the most high-profile among, among them was a chap by the name of Igor Girkin. We could fairly call him a war criminal, in, in that he was involved in the early days of the struggle in Ukraine's southeast back in 2014, and it was units under his command that shot down the, a, a passenger airliner, the MH17, with terrible loss of life. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, he had emerged as, as a really fierce critic of Putin and Putin's system. And he has since been arrested and has then been uh, convicted and uh, sent to prison for four years on extremism charges. But the point is that what's really interesting is that the ultranationalists, their critique of the system is that the reason why Russia is in such a terrible state is precisely because Putin can do basically whatever he wants. And therefore, ironically enough, their prescription is independent courts, proper democracy, rule of law. I mean, there is a weird confluence between the liberals and the ultranationalists. They, they may well have a very different image of what kind of Russia they want, but actually in terms of the institutions, they, there is a, a lot of a strange similarity. Wow. Is there a danger for people who are looking towards a post-Putin Russia that the, the the character that replaces him may well be from those ultranationalists. There is no one individual who can step into that particular position. And almost certainly when he goes, whether it's to a, a coup or whether it's to mortality or whatever, then whoever takes over will have to build a coalition of support. There'll be a lot of probably very bare-knuckled, behind-the-scenes negotiation between individuals, factions and institutions. And that means that whoever the individual may be, frankly, he, and it almost certainly will be a he, I think we can say, is going to be having to consider a whole variety of partners. So even if it's an ultranationalist, they will have to have had a certain amount of technocrats and more moderate figures backing them. So, you know, yes, we may well get someone who, who looks, looks quite hawkish, Hawks are not necessarily imperialists. If it's a smart hawk, he will probably realise that actually Russia's interests, Russia's patriotic needs, are for some kind of disengagement from its current conflict with the West. And ironically, hawks can sometimes do a better job with that. You know, if one goes back, it's the old line that only Nixon could go to China. Or likewise, mm. only Republican President Ronald Reagan could make arms control deals with the Russians because no one could accuse him of being soft on communists. So, you know, actually, we shouldn't necessarily assume that even a, a, a hawkish successor to, to Putin is necessarily also going to be someone who is actually want to, uh, you know, basically continue this war to the knife. This is essentially, I think, a situation in which, certainly as far as I'm concerned, any successor to Putin will be an advantage. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Mark Galliotti, Russia expert, author, and writer for The Sunday Times. Today's producer was Olivia Case, and the executive producer is Kate Ford. Sound design was by Mal Lissetto. 
If you found this episode useful and want to know more about what's happening in Russia, do go back and have a listen to our last episode with Mark, titled Should Zelensky Negotiate with Putin? Thanks again for listening. And if you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. See you tomorrow.